Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Boz to the Future. Uh, for the first-time listeners out there, welcome. This is a podcast where uh, I try to go deep on one or two specific topics. I find that so many, uh, so much coverage in the media, so many other podcasts, they feel like they have to cover a tremendous amount of breadth. Uh, as a consequence, you never get as deep into the issues uh, as I like. Uh, so I have my own podcast, and I can do whatever I want. <laughs> Today, I am joined by one of my favorite people to work with, one of my longest standing colleagues, in fact, Chris Cox, Facebook's chief product officer. Uh, when I first joined Facebook, I sat next to Chris uh, and we would go in and sit together for a long time. And look at us now, Chris, we have come a long way. <laughs> we have indeed. Actually, I wanna give Chris a little extra credit. He's also the person who has been telling me for a long time that I should start a podcast. <laughs> Well, in the early days, we, we sat together and I remember moments that would otherwise be just absolutely terrible at work, <laughs> like spending midnight to 5 a.m. together trying to fix a bug. Just hearing you go on some tangent rant about <laughs> seg faults and the debugger that we had available at that oh time. My and I oh my God. found myself cracking up during these crazy moments and I thought, man... If I could have you alongside me <laughs> for every hard time, uh, at I least for some that. levity and wisdom. <laughs> yeah, the PHP debugger was so bad. I would That's literally, right. I would decompile the PHP binary so I could go, so I could go and 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 actually uh, march through that instead. You were doing some sort of magic back then. We had the craziest. Yeah, it was. It's actually it's funny. It's so much easier for the kids these days, isn't it, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know because I'm so far away from engineering. I it's like no, I cannot I, even pretend I know what the kids are doing. Uh, it's it's you know for us of course it was so much easier for our generation than the generation before, and then um, the generation after where they were doing like web development on much more mature tool sets. Um, you know, it was amazing. What's funny to me a little bit is now in my current work working on augmented reality, working on virtual reality, we're actually back to the, the you know the skill set that people had in the '90s is the valuable skill set again. When we were starting out, you know, the web 1.0 era was amazing how much easier web was relative to programming that I did at Microsoft for my very brief stint there. And of course, at Microsoft, it was easy application programming relative to like the systems programming people did. But to, and, and then it got even easier with web 2.0. The tools got better and better and AWS and everything was so easy. And then now with AR and VR and small, it's getting harder again. <laughs> you know, yeah. we've, we've kind of gone the other way where it's like the, the school, skill sets people had in like the 90s um, where they were like really packing things into tight spaces uh, are valuable again. And, and we're re rediscovering some of that lost wisdom. Okay, one of the things I do, Chris, and I think you know this, is I don't like to introduce people too much. Obviously, I've given your title and your name. I like people to introduce themselves because I can, everyone can go read Wikipedia. What do you think it's important for people to know about you? <laughs> Well, um, I'm a father of two kids. I have a seven-year-old boy and a girl who just turned four. We're living here in Palo Alto uh, with my wife, Vesra, who's a filmmaker. As you know, Boz, and, and maybe some of your listeners know, I moved out here from the Midwest uh, for school and studied AI and participated in the Symbolic Systems Program at Stanford, which is one of the great 
Uh, one of the reasons I came to Stanford is this program was an intersection of computer science and linguistics and cognitive psychology, and those were all right in my center of fascination. Yeah, this is when Chris and I just, we, we hit it off immediately, didn't we? I, I did a similar th program. We called it the Mind-Brain Behavior Program uh, at Harvard, which was computer science and AI, but also, yeah, neurobiology, um, linguistics as well. So Chris and I, you know, from we, we were fast friends. We, we we figured out we were in the same zones. Although I will say, I think, um, you know, Chris has always been kind of one of the spiritual guides for us at Facebook and, and really understood a media you know, for lack of a better term, like what, what it meant to be media. And I think I was relatively more ignorant of that. It took me a long time to come around on that. And that's, this is a good segue into the first deep dive that I want to do. I mean, this is the, this is the, the question, Chris, this is what the question that uh, is on everyone's mind. What is the way in which this, this technology of the day, and I don't mean just Facebook, let's really broaden it out. I mean, the internet probably most broadly, but certainly the communication tools that the internet makes possible what are the impacts that they're having on our society and the way we relate to each other? Um, and how do you think about those? I mean, again, you really, I mean, you've been talking, you know, about understanding media, you know, and, and other tremendous texts for a long time. How are you thinking about it today? Like, how has your thinking evolved in the way in which this new media is impacting the way we relate, relate to other people as a society? Yeah. I mean, you know this, Boz, but I spent a long time trying to search for history that would help us have some approach to the work that we were doing starting in 06 and 07 when we were trying to write a mission statement and trying to write values for the company and trying to even just explain to ourselves what we were doing mm -hmm. beyond, you know, building a website for college students. And, <laughs> right. Um, you know, I, I did a fair amount of uh, like a lightweight version of my own little education in uh, media theory and, and the history of media and especially broadcast media in the 20th century and sort yeah. of how that was all coming about. McLuhan is one of my favorite, although he's really esoteric sometimes and sometimes hard to understand because he was in his later years, he was really pretty far out as a writer and a thinker, but um, he does a comprehensive overview of every medium that's been built <laughs> uh, and the through the lens of yeah. how it was landed, yeah, and, and how it was um, eventually incorporated into industry and, and communication and culture and family and other media. Um, understanding media is his tome. Yep. Yeah. And, and I referenced that earlier. Sorry, I should have, I should have totally. mentioned it. Was yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I'm just giving your listener, our listeners context here. Yeah, absolutely. Give them, um, give them the full context. And then, um, you know, he was one of the people who predicted the internet in the 60s, just based on the fact that we'd laid electric wire underground and we could probably send messages along it. Mm -hmm. uh, and That's that right. that would be a power that was more distributed, which is the power of the internet. Um, is sort of the atomization and the distribution of the ability to send messages. You know, I, I want to take us back to two historical moments. You know, there was a, a point Mark really got made fun of for comparing Facebook to the printing press. Uh, you know, and there's a great line, you know, every, you know, every hundred years and, you know, there's, there's these things. And his timelines were admittedly not historically accurate in terms of <laughs> how frequent the event happens. Uh, it used to happen very rarely, and it's happening more and more frequently as as time as human society progresses, because communication is such a fundamental goal that we have uh, as a species. Um, but he you know, he got made fun of that. You used to always yet yeah, you know, cite McLuhan 
Um, and I really, honestly, I really was building a website for college kids. Uh, it's, a, it's a tremendous credit to you, Chris. Well, I you, was too. You saw it, but no, but you were always trying to understand our place at a larger level. I was like content to just be like, yeah, like people love this. This is great. Um, and it's a credit to you. It took me longer to get there. Um, in fact, I, I famously took McLuhan on and lost, you know, when we were, when we first launched our mobile messaging product, it wasn't just messenger. Uh, though that was what it was. It was Messenger plus email because we were worried about Gmail at the time and we and plus chat, web chat, because we had a huge web chat service at the time. Yep. And I, my, my my number one thing in my keynote was like, you know, the medium isn't the message, but the message is the message. I did not win. <laughs> I took McLuhan <laughs> both, on and lost. Both, I took both him, statements are almost too cryptic to be, I, I took to him, be useful. <laughs> I took them head on and lost. In any case, no, I think um, I think of this all the time. So, okay, so we've got... Uh, We've got this this force that's out there, and you're right. Like if you look at man, the history of of you know the the printing press and the 200, um, 300 almost year you know aftermath of societal change as a consequence of the printing press, and you know the more recent uh, oft covered uh, TV and the political remapping that TV represented in the United States and the presidents that came before who probably would not have been able to get elected. Um, and the presidents who came after who did get elected because of their telegenesis, uh, telegenesis, telegenics. I'm not sure uh, because they yeah. looked good on TV, Chris. Let's just, yeah. let's just say that telegenicism. Yeah, there you go. Uh, I needed to add more syllables. That was the problem. So, <laughs> um, so because of all these things, what, you know, we are now in the throes of recognizing that new media, social media, the internet communication at the scale is having another tremendous impact on society as all new media tends to do. Where do you, do you have an, a prediction? Where is it going to land? Do you have a sense of where it's going? I think what's good about what's happening now, as painful are, as some of these moments and days and weeks are for, for us and for our company, I do think the, the conversation that's happening at, at the government level, mm -hmm. yep. um, in academia, you know, with expert, with political scientists, with with uh, social psychologists, with with each of the sort of um, bodies of people who try and deliberate and understand how media are affecting us, I do think we're reaching a, a zone where there is a lot of scrutiny and collective conversation that's happening around social media, which at the end of the day is good. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I have seen, for example, some of these conversations start to shift into a more scientific realm. Like if you look at the conversation on polarization. Yeah, totally. Which I think started in a zone where it was like, oh, this is probably driving us all into filter bubbles and it's terrible. Or the alternative was like the panacea, like, oh, this is going to bring everybody together and we're like the world is going to become a better place. You know, neither of those is right at all. Yeah, that's <laughs> and right. In the early days, we had those conversations as almost sort of like religious. Totally. Uh, They're just faith, sort of, articles of faith. It's articles of faith. And, you know, you were either a Luddite or you were a techno-optimist. And neither right. of those is, is anywhere near like reality, yeah, totally. the reality of things. Um, part of what I find heartening is that that conversation, once we started to see we society, not we Facebook, but Facebook as well, started to see a lot of academics sink their teeth into the combination of the internet and the political science yeah, that's of right. polarization. There's just been a lot of really good work. Um, can I, 
Yeah. And can I tell you one thing that I think adds to that too, which is I'm starting to see happen now, which is also the interplay of different types of media. Uh, you know, the internet has been treated like this as one like weird unicorn thing that just like exists, but it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It inter- it plays back into print media. It plays back into television. Um, and so what's been interesting is I think, you know, it, politically we think of conservatives, you know, wanting to have kind of a little bit more of the status quo and liberals wanting to have a little bit more progress uh, on some vectors and there's disagreement there. There's also like, this is like a complete orthogonal vector to all those things. Like this is just like a remapping of political power that isn't partisan. It's not along the lines of, of as we would think of the traditional left right spectrum. Um, and as a consequence, it like everyone needs to understand it. As you've said many times, technology is not neutral. Mm-hmm. Um, it has an impact, mm-hmm. uh, even if that impact isn't like judgmental, it's not intrinsic to the technology. It's like, it's, it's, but the interplay between politics and media and one type of media, the internet and other media, it's really starting to get seriously studied now. Uh, whereas it feels, it does feel like the last 10 years was a debate you couldn't answer because there's, there wasn't, there was no ground truth that upon which you could even get to common ground. You couldn't even, be, you couldn't even find a common belief set. Yep. And I, I hope that that's going to continue to happen. And the other thing that's happening is that governments and regulators are just a lot more studied. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think um, expert than the kinds of conversations we were having together about the Internet 10 or 15 years ago or about social media or about encryption or et cetera. And rather than sort of having religious debates on one side or the other, we're starting to have much more reasoned conversations about yeah. the pros and cons of encrypted messaging, the pros and cons of, um, I mean, choose your issue. I like that trend over time. I think on the one hand, there will always be ebbs and flows of some really hot topic, which we are not able to talk about as a society just because it becomes too much of a lightning rod. Yeah. But if you look at the fullness of where we've come over the last um, period of time, you you do start to see the science make its way, you know, plot ahead. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and um, I, I think that's the most critical thing is that we are building this medium while we're studying it. That's and right, that's yeah. different. That's different from... Uh, you know, the birth of, you know, choose your historical example. I mean, even, you know, the birth of the video game industry, we didn't have a lot of science around it. Chris, you've introduced me to, uh, do you want to talk about the the film, the Netflix series on film that you introduced me to? I think it's the story of film. uh, It's a beautiful. Oh, it's one of my favorites. I mean, Netflix is another great example of how the internet and TV are related. But um, yeah, there's a really nice series called the story of film. I think it's eight parts. I think they're each an hour long. Um, I recommend it to some of our new employees just to think about the time span of how long it takes to learn the language Mm -hmm. of a new medium once it's born. And I mean, if you look at the internet in the 1990s, you don't need to imagine too hard how long it took for us to figure out some of the basics, but it takes you through decade by decade, starting in, you know, Menlo Park, New Jersey and, Mm -hmm. uh, and sort of, uh, the outskirts of, of Paris yeah, Edison, from like Edison's, the very, Edison's lab, one of the first that's people right. I know. One of the first that's places, right. Thomas Edison. That's right. So from sort of the invention of film and then through what's the really some of the really interesting periods of, of what they call like language acquisition, which is figuring out close-ups, editing, makeup. Um, part of the first, what we did when we first created film is we started shooting theater. 
Sure, because theater was thousands of years old and we knew how to shoot. Uh, we knew what a theatrical performance looked like. But then we gradually figured out the storytelling and there's all these hilarious moments in the, the early days of editing where like the body jumps in for... Somebody jumps in from the left-hand side and the next scene they're they're falling in on the right. right. Yeah, totally. And Continuity had not like, been discovered yet. <laughs> and like nobody, exactly. Yeah. And, and so many other things. Yeah, I in, love the idea that somebody had to invent the smash cut. Like before that, they were like, how do we get from <laughs> exactly this place right. to that place? Like smash cut, what if we just do a thing? No, I, like, and, and video games, we've seen that in our life to your point. Like we've seen, oh, for you know, sure. can you imagine the video games that we have today, which are cinematic, uh, they're touching, their stories, they're, they're not all like that, but they are. Can you imagine we were growing up in the nineties? If I had told you, you know, a video game made me cry, it had been a you know. I think <laughs> I may have cr- cried during Legend of Zelda, though. That's true. Legend of Zelda, there were some touching, some touching parts. Um, you know, like some of the early Nintendo games were so far ahead of their time. Yeah, well, and look at how beloved those those properties still are, and I think in part because of that, and in part because of nostalgia, of course. Yeah. So, so th- I bring this up just to say, like, I think to to your earlier point about. Um, we are studying this thing as we're building it, which is quite novel. Um, but there is still a process that society goes through and maybe you can speed it up, but you, I, I don't think you can avoid it um, where we just have to integrate this stuff. And it's, a, it does, it remaps all parts of our lives. Like TV remapped, a TV remapped how we built homes, TV remapped um, how we, interacted with people at work, TV remapped things. And it took a long time, but it got there. And the internet is doing that. And it's tough because it's like, it's change. And we just don't like change that much. But it, it, you know, but we do always seem to do it. And, you know, I don't feel, I don't regret that we have the printing press. I don't regret that we have TV. I don't think I'll regret that we have the internet, but it, it is, doesn't mean it's comfortable as a process. Yep. I think that's um, right. Let, so we, one thing I want to kind of tie into this is, so that's the internet. Uh, do you have any early thoughts on augmented and virtual reality? I mean, here are certainly <laughs> new media types. They don't seem that akin to what has come before. Um, certainly virtual reality, the, one of the reasons I tell the story of film story as often as I do is virtual reality has clearly not discovered how to do storytelling in that medium yet. And it's amazing when you see these films that come out that do win an award because they've uncovered a novel mechanism for storytelling that works and everyone's like, oh, my gosh, did you see that? And then you see it everywhere two years later. It's, it's phenomenal. How, how are you, have you, do you have any thoughts on those media? I mean, it's interesting to see some of the forward-leaning filmmakers start to explore um, the medium itself. Yeah, totally. Is it uh, Carne Arenas was the film? Yeah, that's right. Um, hey, Inaritu won a, won a, yeah, uh, a special Academy Award for that. You know, and this is, this is a guy who could probably do whatever he wants at film. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, he's just such an incredible filmmaker. And the film is about um, a border crossing, an immigrant family from Mexico trying to cross the border into the U.S. And the film is experienced in VR, first through the lens of the family trying to cross the border and then through the lens of the Border Patrol police on the U.S. side. That's right. And it's a story about the same experience told through two lenses. A tale as old as time, literally. Go, Let's go back to... <laughs> Yeah, choose your classical literature that that is that device. Yes, totally. But it's about an issue that's important and where literally the idea that you could put somebody in the shoes of someone else might change their perspective on it suddenly takes on a different, completely different uh, resolution when you talk about doing it in VR versus reading about it or seeing a film about it. That stuff is awesome. I mean, I just think 
you've seen stuff out of the um, some of the behavioral sciences groups mm-hmm. at Stanford where they're working on trying to help people better understand gender and ethnicity by literally totally. being in someone else's skin or shoes or or uh, body. I just think, you know, separate from a lot of the other kinds of work that are happening in VR in ophthalmology, where you're seeing some cool stuff happening. Yep. Um, the whole idea of VR being a tool for empathy as an experience is, yeah. I think, fascinating and early, mostly because there's not an economy around it yet. And you're getting these adventurous funded people who can do it. And part of what's so interesting uh, of, of like, where are we in the life cycle of VR is, at least according to a lot of external reports, we passed 10 million devices in the market last year. We, right. the industry. Yep. Um, which means you that's sort of a magic number where you start to get serious investment from uh, from game designers and from, from content creators, et cetera. And so just the velocity of experimentation is going to increase a lot. Yeah. I'm, and this is one thing I really agree with you. And for those who don't know, like uh, you can look up, you know, Traveling While Black and New York Times uh, and, and Oculus produced um, a video that talked about what it was like to, tra- you know, just a glimpse of what it was like to travel um, during the Green Book era uh, in the American South, uh, really actually anywhere in America, I mm. think at the time. So it was, yeah. You know, so there's a there's a ton of storytelling here happening. This and there's also there's 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 lighthearted versions too. Travel, you know, people just you know wa- you know want to yeah. wander and travel, you know, and, and can't otherwise. Um, and I am very curious how these things get more interactive. That's what's starting to happen now. Right now, it's yeah, you're walking around some else's shoes. Is there more that you can get out of that? And that obviously is combinatorically complex. Um, so yeah, yeah for those. There's, there's, and for those who are curious, Chris was mentioning there's uh, researchers studying VR f- to restore um, people's vision, people who've lost parts or certain types of visual disability that can be restored. There's also Stanford is studying for pain management for children. Uh, for children, there uh, turns out like giving children, you know, as you can imagine, opioids is not a popular choice. Um, but you can put them in a VR headset and it can manage pain sometimes better than, than narcotics. There's a, it's a, so there's a, the medium is rich. It has, these are completely different things. There's no relationship between those two uses of it. Let me talk about a third use of it, uh, which is the social uses of it, which I think will be, honestly, you know, if the internet um, is any indication, will be the more dominant one. One of the things that, Chris, I find fascinating about um, all media that have come before and where I think virtual and likely augmented reality will go as it relates to social is it's going to be primarily synchronous. I really believe yeah. that. You know, I yeah. think even text messaging is primarily asynchronous. Sure, we can call, we can video call, we do, those are great, we love Portal. But like a lot of times it's just, it's asynchronous sharing and consumption of information, whether it be private or public. I think a lot of the work in the metaverse is going to be synchronous. And we have, you know, the last new media <laughs> of synchronous exchange uh, in like a town square environment was like the literal town square. Like we invented town squares and then a whole new political life occurred, um, you know, in, in ancient Greece, arguably, if not Mesopotamia before that, you know, to, how do you, th- that's crazy. The difference between what we've been doing, you and I, since we got to Facebook 15, 16 years ago and a pr- predominantly s- uh, synchronous space. That seems quite profound, like a difference. One of my tests for any product in any category is whether when you have when you use it for the first time, you have to go show it to somebody else. Yeah, totally. Like, is it so crazy and new that you have to like share it mm-hmm. when you're when you're experiencing it? It could be, you know, choose, choose your thing. Facebook was definitely like that as part of the reason 
I think we were both excited about coming in the early days. That's right. I was up here in a um, in an internal Horizon experience. Horizon is the uh, social experiences we're building in VR at Facebook in Boz's world, um, currently in beta. And we were, it was a comedy show. Yeah. And it was like 20 of us, which is our concurrency limit today. <laughs> we're working on it, everybody. We're working, we're working on, on it. On we're going to get it up there. Um, it was like 20 of us on the Horizon team and me sitting in a small club, a virtual club. And uh, I think it was like a messenger infrastructure employee who moonlighted as a comedian was there giving a comedy show and he had a little routine and a bit and my wife Vissera came in and was knocking on the door when I was in VR and I was like this is crazy come sit down you have to see this because as opposed to like watching a movie with friends Mm -hmm. like you're watching the movie you're not really gonna stop during the movie and be like hey did you see that like you might do that a couple times but in a movie theater you're basically watching the movie and there happen to be other people there Right. I think a large concert is probably similar. Yeah. But when you are at a comedy show, the whole experience is like the the murmurs and the laughter and and like the the um the experience that the group is having is watching it. So, I mean, your team has done a lot of work on body language and gesture and posture yeah. and gaze and how your hands and fingers look because those are so important to uh, the experience of, of communication. But the other thing is the spatial audio mm-hmm. is so killer that you can it's be amazing. in a room and hear people laughing behind you and turn and hear the sort of the murmur of the audience as someone's telling a joke. It was really awesome. And we're still in the era where the graphics are like good, but they're not crazy. They're not yeah. like, we're not at like PS5 level, you know, like, you know, high resolution totally. graphics yet. We're getting there because of all the the hardware constraints, but that early um, sort of glimpse into what this could feel like to be in a small room with a group of people, to me, was like, yes, this is going to be really powerful. And and these little like workrooms, which is amazing, the product we built for productivity, this comedy experience, like these are little tiny tips of an iceberg. Yeah, um, totally. Which I think are what we're talking, what I feel when we start to talk about the metaverse. Yeah. Is like that being something that applies to a lot of other patterns of, of uh, experience and, and, and social products. And I think what we will, I, I expect us to do, you know, there's, there's this uh, concept in computer science of, um, you know, design, when you try to design something that's novel, you want to anchor it to things that people are familiar yeah. with. It's just metaphor that always comes across. Um, what's the what's the term for it in design? I'm I'm blanking on it. When you're like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. When when the like, uh, I'm get myself in trouble with this with my design friends. Um, <laughs> what is the t- when when the design looks like skeuomorphic? That's the yeah, word. Skeuomorphism is what you're looking for. Yeah, I, it's, okay. it's great. I'm on a podcast. You got it. Brain. You got it. Yeah, you didn't have to search. Yeah. No, no, I didn't. I got skeuomorphism. <laughs> so like, yeah, yeah, there's this concept that you we we take you know so. Um, these I, these new things and we try to map them into sure. metaphors and that makes sense because someone who's brand new how do they know and I love the stories today of uh, you know young children asking hey what is this icon next to save it's a floppy disk they've never seen a floppy disk they don't know what that is and at some point <laughs> that was like a, a thing that was meaningful to people but they've never seen that and so at some point the skeuomorphism actually loses its connection to to reality as the technology takes hold and then you move beyond it and I do think that in virtual reality 
um, certainly, and potentially an augmented reality, we're going to have to start there. Like, you know, it's like, yeah, the comedy club needs to feel like a comedy club so that you understand it. And then you're going to be amazed at how much it feels like you're in a comedy club. And then I, what I always wonder, and I, I don't think it's knowable. I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and I don't think it's no, you don't know what's going to come next because it, it's until enough of society gets onto that level, has completely transcended the metaphor from its starting point to its finishing point that they're ready to move onward. And I think about this all the time. It's very much the point of this conversation about integrating new media types as a society is there's just some physics involved in each of us individually, but certainly collectively as a society that we like need to go through a process where we integrate the consequences of new things and then we get comfortable with them. Like the kids aren't worried about this stuff. They, they, it's native to them. It's always been like this. They don't know what a floppy disk is. They don't care. Like they're, they're fully in the digital cloud. I, what was the crazy New York, the article I saw the other day? It was like, um, you know, kids didn't know uh, how to like print things. They were just like, they just needed help. They didn't understand what it was. To, like, <laughs> you know, I or they, they didn't know how to make pages. <laughs> they, were in a doc, they were in Google yeah. Docs. They didn't know how to make pages. They're like, how yeah. do you know it? Like, what's a page? Like, what even is a page? Yeah, yeah. And it's a totally well, I sensible. Mean, you know, we got that's where we got the language of the internet was from. Oh print, yeah, totally. Web pages. That's I think, right. Yeah, I mean, I think part of what um, you see when you see kids use an iPad. I mean, I watch my daughter Kaya. She's four. She just turned four, and she can work her way through an iPad. Just part of the genius of its design. Yeah, is it is the same way you move things around on a table with your fingers and with your hands. Part of why it's obvious that computing is going to get closer to the eyes is just that's how we see. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it's as simple as like, would you design a keyboard if you were <laughs> 200 years in the future trying to think about how we interact with computers? Yeah, totally. No. Uh, would you design a, a mouse that you move around on a, on a, on a, you know, a, a pad that sits in front of you? And I think the, the metaphor of, um, of things that are tactile and that are sonic and auditory and that involve the body and our body language is just so the best part about it. Um, and it's also one we need to be incredibly conscientious about is just that our bodies are finally engaged in the experience. Yeah. hundred percent. And part of what's so exhausting about zoom, not zoom, but video conferencing, part of what's so exhausting about COVID is you're interacting with people all day through literally a box. Yeah, totally. And you're you're in the same position. It's just so unnatural. Parsing, yeah, you're parsing everybody's eyes looking at you, but not sure if they're looking at you. It's yeah, like in a, in a way, our quest for technology is to like get back to like what we expected when we evolved. Like yeah, those, mean, yeah. like you know, we've with VR and and certainly with AR, a huge focus on natural language, a huge focus on hands, a huge focus on natural manipulation of objects, things that feel like you know, reduce the degree to which we have to remap, and you degree reduce the degree to which we have to work and it just gets easier to use. That's right. Um, one thing I'll bring up one last thing. We'll have to move to the second deep dive at some point because time is fleeting, but um, for you, like, so today actually you and I are kind of, what a, what a fun time actually, you know, again, especially given our history, uh, you are the chief product officer of Facebook and you oversee the family of apps. So, you know, everything that people really know about from Facebook today, uh, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, messenger, um, uh, privacy, a bunch of things that you know you're, you're overseeing today, and I'm I've been named, and I'm this, I'm not trying to blag with this, it's just it's fun symmetry. I've been named the future CTO of Facebook, and I'm working kind of on the other half. I'm working on Facebook Reality Labs, which is 
um, yeah, augmented reality, virtual reality, portal, um, uh, you know, brain computer interface, uh, research, uh, a lot of we audio research. We are finally research. pod mates again, Boz. We're, pod, we're back in the West Wing. That's what we used to call our pod. <laughs> we used to live on the West side of the building. We called it the West Wing. So yeah, so so we're we're we have this wonderful kind of partnership going back a long time. Our we have, there's a symmetry inside of the company, which is quite satisfying to me uh, intellectually. How you know what do you, what do you see as the relationship between the family of apps and the metaverse? I think it's fun to start to think about some of the experiences you have on a screen today, um, on Instagram or Messenger or Facebook, for example looking at a photographer and artist uh, on Instagram. The Instagram profile is a gallery, more or less, and it's mostly a gallery of visual, mm-hmm. uh, of visual language. It's photographs. It's sometimes it's uh, one of my dearest friends, Drew, is a painter. It's him painting or it's his paintings. And, um, you know, those are meant to be, those are designed to be hung in a space yeah, most totally. of the time. If you're a professional visual artist or as a, as a corollary, if you're a professional designer of clothes or of pottery, or if you're my nephew, uh, my 14 year old nephew, Kirby, he's a, um, a shoe artist. Oh, he buys nice. like white sneakers and he makes them, he takes orders through Instagram yeah, and he cool. makes incredible uh, like art and he sells them. Send him a plug. His, what's, what's his, what's his handle? You got to hook, hook him uh, up. Chris. Yeah. Let me get his, let me get his handle. Yeah, you're going to want to get that handle. If you got a, if you got a 14 year old nephew, who's got a business on Instagram yeah, I think it's Casey and you're on this podcast, Pitch. not dropping, yeah. dropping the exact handle that he's got, you are definitely doing, um, uh, doing it wrong. You got to cross promote. Yeah. All it's right. K.C. Dot kicks underscore ninety nine. This is relevant Nine. to my interest. I love. I love. Uh, you got it. It's k dot c dot kicks underscore ninety nine. Your point is there's a tremendous depth of visual artistry. Some of it there is digital visual artistry that's happening. That's exciting that's right. too. But there's also but a lot even of even just the, you know the billions of people who have totally. Instagram profiles. Yeah, totally. Like, what does that look like in a space that you design? What does that look like in, if it's family portraits? What does that look like mm-hmm. in a living room? What does it look yeah. like in a gallery? What does it look like in the museum? What if you could hang it in the Louvre? Totally. I think that's a fascinating zone. I think um, these crossovers between be- looking at something through a screen and wondering it, what, what it could look like in a space are mm-hmm. some of the bridges to when we talk about the metaverse, I am fascinated by. Yeah, especially if I could give you a tour of that or like, you know, invite you into my gallery as an event and, and, and showcase my new wares. I mean, I think some of those are interesting. Well, we're on the same page. Co-presence is what I was going to talk about. It's like so many of these things, you know, we live in a world where I watch a TV show, you watch a TV show and we can talk about it and vibe on that. Even if we're watching it together, that's kind of what you have to do to your point that you made earlier. Uh, and that's a cool asynchronous world, but it is also still cool to experience things together. Um, and like, it's actually cooler and more rich and it feels like it, it bonds us together more closely. It creates a symbolic connection between our relationship and this art. Um, and it is something that's different and powerful and cool. And we'll reference it later. Hey, remember that time? Um, and so often people have uh, zero sum fallacies in their head about media. We've never ever eliminated any form of media in history as far as I can tell. Like at no point have we ever eliminated one. We've just integrated new ones in addition to the old ones. Uh, like we still read books. We still write letters. Um, now, obviously, the, the amount of time or in, uh, investment that goes into those things varies over time. But like, yeah, I think, you know, yeah, we're going to have tre- we're still going to need we have tremendous time in our lives to consume and create content asynchronously. 
uh, because synchronous is expensive. You have to coordinate with somebody. You have to like be on the same page, the whole thing. But I hope we open up a new modality of people to have these shared experiences. That is the, the, the dream that I have for it, certainly. Part of what you see in the in the early research on VR is people starting to get together, like a, a group of uh, young people get together. It's after school. And then they just decide together what to do. And then they move yeah, around. That's right. Um, and it's it's similar to like walking into town and deciding if you're going to go get a bite to eat or go window shop or go to the park or it's it's a it has the metaphor of like we just want to spend time together and have a menu of stuff to do yeah that's right and that yeah. never really like easily made its way to the web no like it's not often that you find yourself like looking at something with people and deciding like all right we watched that youtube video now let's go to <laughs> yeah totally. Now let's go play Fortnite. yeah it's um, hard to do. you're starting to see some of that happen on discord which is yep. used as a coordination and planning tool often for young people to have synchronous experiences together across a range of games. Yeah, that's right. But it's kind of like the early, I think it pretends like a much bigger pattern. Yeah, I agree. That is exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I think back to like, you know, when we were growing up, you like, you know, you'd get on the phone, you'd be talking to somebody, there was like the party line, you know, I think, <laughs> you know, there's like, you could do that. But yeah, there was nothing to do. Like they, they all just kind of, they never you could never take them anywhere. You could never do anything with them, which seems like the thing that we have the opportunity to transcend, um, potentially, if we do it right with virtual reality. Uh, okay, I want to I wanted to transition to our second deep dive, Chris, because, you know, uh, one thing that people may not know about you is that you took a year off from Facebook about uh, a few years back, um, and you went really deep to study uh, the climate. Uh, you, said, you know, obviously, we're in the midst of um, a crisis of climate, uh, I am myself uh, a little closer to the techno-optimist side, and I have a, a confidence um, in our society that we will be able to solve it. I think we're capable of, of solving the problem, uh, but I also don't believe in technological inevitability. I mean, that means to solve it, you yep. really have to dedicate yourself to it. Um, and few people I know actually know more about it than you do. I, I'd probably just be good to hear from you what have you learned? Like, what are the, what are the things that you f are feeling are really promising? What are the concerns that you have? Well, I'm a novice to, to caveat here. I'm not a climate expert and I don't want to portray myself as one. I did go after the question of what can software engineers, like people like us, right. people that build software for a living, what can we do? What are the, what are the interesting markets or angles for software to do something about it? Because in hardware, there's a lot of cool stuff going on. There's new battery technology. Yep. There's you know carbon negative technology stuff that pulls carbon out of the air. There's uh, you know advanced nuclear. You know there's all the work on EVs. There's new kinds of concrete which are going to be really important because yeah. concrete, it turns out, and construction is a huge one of the really big problems when it comes to emissions. Yeah, I've been following this as well. It's, it's yeah, tremendous. and like concrete's incredibly expensive to produce from a carbon perspective. And you don't want to stop progress of the ability that people have to like, you know, to, to live. You've got to, you've got to, but, but there's huge leverage if you can improve those technologies. That's kind That's of traditional. Right. So you're talking about, it. let's look at the top producers of carbon and yeah. technologically, can we improve them? The answer and is probably yes. And there's a few sectors that, you know, there's transportation, there's construction, yep. there's power and energy in general, there's food and land use. I mean, this gets you through the sort of the buckets. Yep. Um, anyway, one of the 
areas that to me was starting to become really interesting is using remote sensing in order to measure and understand what's happening. So this mm -hmm. is some combination of satellites and LIDAR uh, and drones and others, what is called in the industry, remote sensing technology to basically have like, think about it as a body going into a hospital. Like when you're sick, you want measurement systems everywhere. You want to like put instrument the body and figure out what's going on. And you want real time measurement systems. So, you know, when there's a flare up, that metaphor works pretty well when you're thinking about the planet, like, all right, I want to know right away when there is a coral bleaching event happening that was unexpected. I want to know when there's a wildfire. I want to know when there's illegal deforestation that's happening in the Amazon. I want to know when there's a methane leak. Totally. Uh, that's ac mostly accidental that's happening from this uh, agriculture facility. It's getting to the point where we're actually going to be able to measure and understand those events in real time mm -hmm. and create awareness about them in the public, to journalists, to environmental agencies, to, in some cases, uh, forestry, uh, you know, the, the folks that manage a lot of the land in California. Um, that to me is a really neat area. Planet totally. is working on that. I, I uh, remain an advisor to Planet, which is, makes and deploys satellites based right here in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. uh, Vibrant Planet is, a, is another one I'd shout out to that's working on forestry. So they're building tools for helping uh, forest managers better allocate their resources so that when they hire folks to come in and manage the forests, they have LIDAR, uh, which penetrates foliage mm -hmm. so that you can actually wow. look at how much under uh, brush and undergrowth and understory there is yeah. so that you can make like calculated rational decisions about how to manage a forest. For Californians, huge shout out to Controlled Burns. By the way, it's a technology we've known about yeah. since the 60s. We have not used it effectively. Uh, we got to light the fires when you can control them, as opposed to having the fires light when you can't control them. So yeah, there's like efficient forestry. Efficient forestry is part of the problem. Oh, huge, yeah, huge and, part of the problem. Yeah, and um, so anyway, that area, I would just say that space, the intersection of remote sensing and environmental science. Yeah, and huge. there's a bunch of startups. It's unlocked by the fundamental technologies of a lot more satellites taking pictures and images, and of lidar, which lets us penetrate. Uh, you know, canopies and, wow. and and sometimes penetrate oceans to start to see things like coral and undergrowth, et cetera. That's interesting. And I think um, will require a lot of computer vision and data munging and APIs and, you know, creating common systems and et cetera. Google has done some good work here um, on building better uh, APIs and controls for accessing Google Earth data. Yeah, cool. You're starting to see more players pay attention to this, but it's one of the areas that I got increasingly fascinated by because it's still kind of annoying yeah. that you can't go look at like a real-time monitoring system for Earth, which is the system we're trying to save. Totally. Yeah, it's it's for us. I think this happens so often to people in our industry, and I'm sure in many industries, we are so highly optimized uh, at some point in you know, some industries of like, yeah, you're supposed to look to see a dashboard that gives you the entire thing. Mm -hmm. And then you're kind of shocked to find that things that are far more important than what we work on, like the earth, don't have it. Like you're that's, like, that's exactly how I got there. You're just like, wait, where's what? my dashboard? Where's my dashboard for how the earth is doing? Yeah. And the I, UN doesn't... Is, by the way, the for UN... who's going to make fun of us for that, it's totally fair. You should make fun of us for that. But it's yeah, true. Like, it's like, it's, 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 you know, I, I, I think the fact that this is now, I, I really think you're right, though. This is garnering, I'm seeing this garner tremendous capital 
now. Especially, awesome. the, especially the construction power and transportation spaces, yep. um, which it does. That, that is probably the thing that gives me the most hope, uh, not being as close to the actual technologies as you are, is how much I'm seeing smart people and investment go into these spaces. And by the way, the, the, the things that they're producing, the concrete one's a good example. Not only is it better for the environment, uh, it's also actually a better product. Like it's, it's it, it, like it has less waste products in general, not just environmental waste, uh, but in general, it's just like a better product if they can get it done. Uh, so it is kind of fascinating to me that we are seeing a breakthrough in, in you know, materials and chemical and physical sciences that didn't feel like it was happening five or 10 years ago. There's not yet a good marketplace for these yet. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think one of the other um, existing problems in the system right now is it's not easy for, let's say you're building, you're a construction, you're doing construction in Seattle, you're a yep. contractor and you build houses, you build buildings. There's not currently a really good tool for letting you go see, these are all the kinds of aluminum or steel you yeah. can buy. And you, you know their price, you know their quality, you know how long it's gonna take to get to you. You know whether it was made in you know X, Y, or Z. You know if it's American or not. But there isn't. But there's huge differences in uh, sure. by skew, literally at the skew yeah. level of emissions. So two materials side by side. There's no and they're same. It could be very similar on paper as far as you're concerned. Dramatically different impact to the environment. There will be a growing demand from consumers. Yeah, that's right. Like there has been for nutrition, and at some and some more less measured ways for things like organic and fair trade. Yep. You know, those those took hold of the consumer imagination and they exhibited preferences. That yep. is going to happen, not just for things as obvious as an EV, but for maybe more, you see LEED certified building based on their totally. attempts to go and understand the supply chain. And even for consumer products like what you're building, Boz, yep. there's going to yep. be more of a demand from consumers and the industry for some certifiable rigorous way of understanding the supply chain yep and therefore of uh, manufacturers to understand the carbon footprint of every skew yeah amazing <laughs> you know and that database of things doesn't exist yet but i do think that that's an important um there needs to be something like that yeah totally. for us to start up creating pressure and incentives against high emissions products early in the supply chain you know what I'm yep. saying? Raw materials, uh, lumber, um, steel, et cetera. I think people often ask, like, what, what can they do? This is one of them, which is, you know, be climate conscious in your consumption. I mean, that's one of the things that you can do as a discerning consumer. Uh, yeah, I built a house and I built the house lead gold. And I got to tell you, it was a con the, the contractor wasn't used to that. And it was a constant journey to like, we had to go <laughs> get a bunch of information that, they, that people didn't have. And when they didn't have it, I just wouldn't use those things because you, you can't be confident. Um, and I think it's, it is, and that was five years ago, and it hasn't improved as much as I would have thought it would have by now. The other area I would just say for people sometimes ask me, but they, I mostly ask them, what can they do is pay attention to climate policy in your state or your mm -hmm. region or your country, because policymakers have a huge amount of leverage right now on the problem. This isn't a case where if we get everybody to drive a little bit less and eat a little bit less beef, we're going to be okay. Totally. You know, this is, we're in a zone where we really do need the top lawmakers, prime ministers, heads of state to make really big decisions around re-engineering their industrial complex, Yeah, totally. around creating incentives um, on carbon trade systems or carbon caps. Like there needs to be real teeth to bend the curves in the way that we need to bend the curves. And so 
what you want is for consumers to be engaged in policy and right. calling their senator or or their you know district representative whatever it is to and that that gets you to we just need better tools for people being aware of how they can be engaged politically yeah yeah uh, is, is is another key zone right now i am such a huge fan of labeling regimes i mean i think you know uh, I, yeah. I get i get a little wary when um when government is is uh getting in and distorting the market with too much subsidies because are you doing the work to make it sustainable these things need to be economically sustainable uh, i think it's a, a short term it's a smart thing to do to to bootstrap a marketplace but i do think that the information labeling schemes are such a, a no-brainer kind of opportunity for people um let me uh we, we're out of time let me i want to i want to do a quick lightning round Chris, you're a tremendous musician. People may, may not know that about you. What are you listening to right now? <laughs> oh man! It doesn't have to be um, new. It can be anything. Whatever. You, what's on your what's on your playlist? Um, I've been getting really so. I don't know. I think during COVID, everybody goes to like something that gives them a little bit of joy. And sure. Yeah. A little comfort. Happy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I've been listening to a lot of High Life, King Sunny Day. Chief Osito Sadebe. It's West African music from like the 60s and 70s. Uh, it's it's a it's a genre that's not for everybody, but um, it's kind of borrowing from Motown and just crushing beautiful, incredible music. Uh, it's tremendous energy. It's a tremendous energy. Amazing energy and, and brings a smile to your face. Great for running. Great for backyard barbecues and stuff like that. Chris, give me name me a creator. Is there a creator that you're following who's who's putting stuff out right now that you just think is so interesting that's so fascinating? I mean, aside from my nephew, who who yeah, discussed. yeah, we've wrapped, wrapped, wrapped the family. Got I think the family. I think the person I've been the most fascinated by is Umi Janta. Mm. She's a um, she's a German, she's a Senegalese Berliner, uh, who kind of like has has really blown up this genre of like old school roller skates in a park. Yeah, cool. But like alone. And so she's kind of a roller skate dancer. She's listening to house music or good disco. And she's got this incredible uh, choreography and vibe and aesthetic. And she, thanks in part to Instagram, has completely blown up during COVID and is now one of the figureheads for this whole subculture of roller skaters, old school roller skaters. Which is, yeah, it's blown up. Well, it's awesome. Yeah. So she she's one of my favorites right now because I think she captures so much of the of the sort of gestalt of, of the awesome. whole creator idea. Uh, okay. Well, so Chris, the, this is the question I ask everybody, where should people follow you for thoughts or, or ideas that you're sharing? Where should find they follow me on you? Facebook uh, or Instagram? You that's can right. Just look me up and you'll find me there. Yeah. Good man. Hey, listen, we're on Boz's podcast. That's right. You are <laughs> on uh, at Boz's podcast where you can find it anywhere. Thank you all for uh, listening to Boz to the future. You can find it wherever you enjoy your fine podcasts, Spotify, Apple, and Facebook. Leave me thoughts and feedback. Uh, those who know me um, know that I actually do listen and love and appreciate it. I'm at Boz Tank on both Instagram and on Twitter or Facebook.com slash Boz. Thank you for tuning in and I will see you or rather you'll hear me next time. 